Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In today's interview, I am talking with Dr. Richard Balkan about his book, Practicing Forgiveness, A Path Toward Healing. Our relationships enrich our lives. Strong bonds with family, friends, and colleagues make our lives full and vibrant, but they can also be a source of distress or even trauma. Few relationships are perfect, and we often find ourselves let down by even the people we count on most. Learning to navigate the challenges is vital to protecting our health and our well-being. In this book, the author presents a model for forgiveness that addresses how we either repair relationships when someone has harmed us, or how we move forward when relationships are beyond repair. Repairing a relationship is not always practical. The model presented in this book can be helpful to promote self-healing and to either re-establish relationships with others or move forward when reconciliation is harmful or not possible. Practicing forgiveness draws on the perspectives of counseling professionals from across the country to explore contextual and cultural aspects of forgiveness with stories, humor, clinical examples, research, and empirical findings, while also considering the influence of environment and religion. The forgiveness process is a universal one, and this book serves as a resource to anyone wishing to gain insight into their own personal journey. Dr. Balkan is a professor and assistant department chair of leadership and counselor education and coordinator of educational research and design for the School of Education at the University of Mississippi. He began his practice as a professional counselor in 1993 and has worked in academia since 2003. His counseling experience with at-risk youth was formative to his research agenda. It includes understanding the role of counseling and relevant goals for adolescents in crisis and counseling outcomes. Dr. Balkan's publications include textbooks on assessment and counseling, research, and the counseling relationship published tests and technical manuals, peer-reviewed manuscripts, book chapters, and conference proceedings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Psychology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the channel, and today I am talking with Dr. Richard Balkin about his new book, Practicing Forgiveness, A Path toward healing. Thanks for being here today. Yeah. And, yeah. And wonder if you'd start us out by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book on forgiveness. Okay. My background uh, is in uh, uh, counselor education. I got my PhD in counselor education. I'm a licensed professional counselor. Uh, have been so, um, I, I've been practicing since 1993. I got my master's degree in 1992 at the University of Missouri, Columbia. 
and then got my doctorate at the University of Arkansas in 2003. Uh, but between uh, uh, 1993 and, and, and 2000, I, 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 uh, I worked with uh, adolescents in a psychiatric hospital um, working with kids who were danger to self, danger to others. And then uh, uh, after I got my, uh, uh, my, my, my doctorate, um, I, I went into academe. And so I've been teaching at university since 2003. Uh, currently, I'm uh, uh, at the University of Mississippi uh, in Oxford, Mississippi. So uh, uh, I love it here. And uh, uh, I teach uh, counseling courses about, uh, you know, my specialization is research methods and statistics. And so I know that seems weird, but, uh, you know, I really try to stay connected to, to clinical uh, work, but I'm also a, a kind of a geek and, and, and a nerd when it comes to showing evidence for what we do. And uh, so I, uh, uh, I, I teach in that area across the School of Education. And uh, I'm uh, uh, the uh, coordinator for educational research and design in the School of Education and the assistant department chair in leadership and council education. Interesting. So. And so how did you end up kind of zeroing in on forgiveness? Yeah. So it goes all the way back to my clinical work at the psychiatric hospital uh, on this adolescent unit around, I want to say it was around 1998. And um, I, uh, I had a client um, uh, in the book, I call her Sheila. Um, and uh, Sheila was around 16 years old. And um, she goes to her school counselor and tells her school counselor that she's been sexually abused by her father. And uh, the school counselor does everything the school counselor is supposed to do. Uh, she calls the abuse hotline. Um, there's an investigation. Father's removed from the home. Father denies the allegations. And so there's this conflict with people questioning the validity of this disclosure. Um, you know, keep in mind, this is 1998. This is before the Me Too movement. Um, and, uh, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, you know, you know, there's the question from family of whether this girl has been traumatized or whether she's, um, you know, making this up about her father. Um, but, you know, there was some pretty compelling evidence to suggest that, you know, she's telling the truth. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons this, this case stuck with me so much was, was two things. But one is I went to court um, and I was asked by the father's attorney, the defense attorney, why I believe my client is telling the truth. And I had mentioned in court and said, you know, by the time we've gotten here, I said, uh, my client has, has, has told her story to her school counselor, to her um, child protective case, uh, caseworker, to a police officer, to attorneys, right? to a physician who admitted her to the psychiatric hospital that I work at, to a nurse who did a nursing assessment, to a pre-admission assessment coordinator who did this entire screening beforehand, and to me, and it's all documented. And so we have consistency. So then another thing I look at, aside from consistency, is feasibility. Does this happen? Unfortunately, it does. That in my work, I have heard this story before. And then the third thing uh, I look for is congruence. You know, congruence is, you know, you know that, that emotional response that you kind of expect when someone is sharing a traumatic event. 
Um, and I expect one of two traumatic, you know, you know one, of, one of two emotional responses. One is, you know, the person may be very cheerful or angry or, you know, you know, visibly hurt. Or another is to disclose what has happened almost with this, this, this flat affect, this as matter of fact tone with no emotion whatsoever of here's what happened, totally emotionally detached from it. An incongruent response would be somebody who would be disclosing the story with a smirk on her face or something like that. We didn't have that. So I said to the, you know, to the judge, we, we have um, consistency, feasibility, and congruence, and that's why I believe the client. You know? um, but, uh, you know, but before all this, I mean, you know, people are questioning her and she doesn't have the support system in place and it's getting worse and she threatens suicide. So she ends up in the hospital and that's how I meet her. Um, and you're like, still, you know, how does this deal with forgiveness? First family session, about 48 hours after admission, I'm meeting with the mom and I'm saying, you know, what your daughter needs right now is support. And uh, mom seems to understand what I'm saying. At least I thought she did. And so I go and I bring the daughter into the family conference room. The family conference conference room is set up where we've got this uh, uh, sofa and two chairs. And usually, you know, uh, the kid and the parent might sit on the sofa together, but that doesn't happen. Kid goes to the sofa. Mom goes to the chair next to me. We sit down. Mom looks at her daughter and says to her daughter, you know, as a Christian, you have to forgive him. That's the first words in the session. You know, as a Christian, you have to forgive him. And I look at the mom and I, I don't miss a beat. I don't think about what to say. I don't pause. I don't reflect. I look at the mom and I go, well, wouldn't that be convenient for you? And she looks at me like, what did you just say? And I said, well, then you don't have to choose between your daughter's disclosure and your husband's denial. You can just sweep it all under the rug because it's forgiven. So that family session can go so well. Um, and, you know, look, if you're a clinician and you're listening to this right now, you might go, yeah, way to stick up for your client, way to advocate. You might go, oh, my goodness, you said that. Okay. You know, um, yeah. What I didn't say, I didn't go, I didn't look at the mom and say, wow, this must be really hard for you having to choose between your daughter's disclosure and your husband's. No, I didn't say that. I didn't reflect back. I went for the jugular. Um, and so this was part of my MO of right now, what your daughter needs is support. Mom, you're not giving it. I am. Um, but like it, the comment or hate the comment. That's what I said. And uh, I'm not going to change the narrative because somebody doesn't like it. That, that, that's what happened. Um, and all the things that transpired after that. You know, there's a lot of questions I've always wondered about. Um, you know, as a Christian, you know, you have to forgive him. I'm not Christian. I'm Jewish. Um, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard the old anecdotes of turn the other cheek. Um, but I, I'd always wondered about that. Um, and because I went to court and because I testified and because there was, this was so much going on and this, uh, you know, this daughter discharges from the hospital and she doesn't go home. She goes to live with other family members who appear to be more supportive of her. Um, five years later, I've gotten my doctorate. I've moved to McKinney, Texas with my family. I've joined a, a synagogue in Plano, Texas. And it's Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement holiest day of the year. You fast, you go to services. 
I'm at services and I don't want to go home and stare at the refrigerator because I'm fasting. So I attend a study group in between services. And the study group is led by this guy who's talking about the Jewish conceptualization of forgiveness. Mm. And he talks about three types of forgiveness. The first type being uh, kapara, which is spiritual forgiveness. Um, the forgiveness that only God can give. And the second type of forgiveness he talks about is siliha, restitutional forgiveness. These are Hebrew words. And, you know, I borrow your lawnmower, I break your lawnmower, I repair your lawnmower. We're good. Okay. You know, um, I, I could make restitution. But then we started talking about some types of offenses where restitution isn't even possible, like slander, like um, abuse. And there's this idea of mechila, which translates to wipe away debt, that what I want from you, I'm never going to get. Maybe you've experienced a, a situation where you know, you loan some money to somebody and they never paid you back. And maybe they couldn't pay you back. And you go, all right, am I going to ruin the relationship over this? No. And you go, what I want from this person, I'm never going to get. And I forgive you of your debt. I wiped away your debt. That doesn't mean that I've reconciled my relationship with you. That doesn't mean that we have this trusting, loving bond. It just means that I'm not going to wake up brooding over what you owe me anymore. I've moved past it. But what we've done with the relationship, that's different. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's, that's beautiful. We don't talk about that in counseling. We talk about, you know, forgiveness. And it's always this interpersonal process of, of uh, you know, how two people work it out, how they heal their relationship. But sometimes forgiveness can be this intrapersonal process. And so I started reading, I was really heavily influenced by Robert Enright's work on forgiveness and Everett Worthington's work on forgiveness. And I end up writing this manuscript that gets published in a journal called Counseling Values called um, Integrating uh, you know, the Jewish conceptual, Conceptualization of Forgiveness in the Clinical Practice. And it's about mechilah. It's about wiping away the debt and developing this model of trying to decide whether your, your journey in forgiveness is going to be interpersonal, where you reconcile the relationship, or whether it's going to be intrapersonal. That article gets published in 2009, and I do this presentation uh, at the American Counseling Association National Conference. Previously, I'd been presenting on adolescent mental health and outcomes. I'd get like six people to show up, even though what I thought I was doing was fascinating. Here, I'm, pre I'm presenting this conceptual idea, and I have 120 people in the room. And I'm like, wow, this resonates. And being the researcher, I'm like, I have this model of how I think this works. Can I validate it? So I developed this measure called the Forgiveness Reconciliation Inventory based on this model of interpersonal versus intrapersonal forgiveness, interpersonal forgiveness versus nahira. And I collect data and I formulate this data-driven model that I think has evidence of how we can work through forgiveness. And um, then my question was, is how do I get this out there? Because the average person isn't going to read an academic journal. They don't care about my stats. And I think there's a compelling story to tell about this because it's, 
it's bigger than just this one case with Sheila. Um, you know, forgiveness is such a, a universal construct. Um, at my daughter's, well, excuse me, at my bar mitzvah, I tell the story at my bar mitzvah. Um, I have a bar mitzvah. My, 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 we have a reception afterwards. And my mother has served the smoked turkey. And I don't know if you've ever had a good smoked turkey, but, you know, she serves a smoked turkey. And one of the congregants walks up to her and says, Susie, this is really good ham. And my mom is like, ham in the synagogue? Are you kidding me? I would never serve that. It's smoked turkey. She was really upset. Yeah. And uh, 30 years later, it's my daughter's bat mitzvah. And my mother comes up to me and she says, you know, Arnold Meichenbaum, I can't believe it. He came up to me and he accused me of serving a ham in the synagogue. I'm so like, wow, well, some things are never forgiven. <laughs> so, so it doesn't have to be this big traumatic thing. It can just be this, this stuff that we carry around. <laughs> right. So how does this measure work? to help people lessen the stuff we carry. So the book, the, the measure is part of the book. I put the measure in the book and, um, but it's one chapter in the book. Right. The book is about the model. And so um, I call it the forgiveness reconciliation model. And um, I compare this model to the work of Robert Enright and Everett Worthington, who have done national and international work. Uh, and there's some similarities and there's some differences. Um, my first step in, in looking at this process, I call it uh, collaborative exploration. And it's focused on talking about what's happened to you. You can talk to a counselor, therapist, mentor, grandma, a friend, but you talk about it and, 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 you know, feel, you know, why do I have to talk about it? And I, and, and, and I, I think that's a, such an interesting question. You know, have you ever had, or yeah, I'm sure you all, you know, every, anybody who's listening to this, you know, you know, you've had a moment where something horrible has happened to you because the one thing that binds us as human beings is we will all experience grief and loss that will, you know, we will all lose some, someone close to us at some point in time. And um, have you ever had something just so traumatic that you can't even talk about it until you do, you know, um, you know, some, you know, that, that, that it becomes more mentionable. And, you know, I tell a story of leading uh, an adolescent group where one of my group members is this oppositional teenager and He's like, I hate it when my mom tells me what to do. And he's got this very, you know, colorful phrase he uses to describe his mother, uh, you know, not appropriate at all, but really can't stand her. And, um, you know, uses this phrase repeatedly to describe her. And I'm like, on a scale of one to 10, with one being no problem at all and 10 being, you know, just completely unmanageable. Where are you with this? And he's like, I'm a 10. This is unmanageable when she tells me what to do. And this other person uh, in my group, um, not Sheila, but it was another case. You know, she says, um, when my parents got divorced, I went to go live with my dad. And I didn't realize that my dad was an addict. And uh, when I was living with my dad, we'd smoke pot together. 
Um, and then one day he offers me crystal meth and I tell him no. And he puts it into my food and I get really sick and then he rates me. And this goes on for a year. And uh, so here I am now, I'm a crystal meth IV user. I've been raped for the past year and I just want to die. And right away, I'm thinking into my head, that's a term. That sounds completely unmanageable. And this kid who just spoke goes, okay, mine's a four. Right. And then I'm thinking about this term, what was just shared. And of course, I'm thinking, you know, she wants to die. I understand where she's at, but I disagree with her solution. And I think anybody would. We don't want her to die. We don't want her to give up. We want her to find a way to move past this trauma, which means that this trauma has to move from being something unmanageable to something manageable. While she's here in the hospital, we got to move this 10 to a nine or an eight or a seven. And so even this horrific trauma that we said is a 10, she's now brought it up in group. It's not a 10 anymore. It's mentionable. It's a nine. We are making that step. And so this idea of collaborative exploration really does tap into this classic idea of counseling and psychotherapy, of what it means to be able to talk about a problem and just the importance of that process. And then we move on into the role of reconciliation. Sometimes reconciliation is beneficial and sometimes it's not, you know. Um, you know, sometimes we see people who, you know, I, I worked with a couple and there was infidelity in the relationship and they had kids and they wanted to move past it and come together again as a couple. That's very different from someone who's in an, in an abusive relationship. Um, and so what is this role of reconciliation? Sometimes reconciliation is beneficial and whoever the offender is and the victim is, they can meet and they can work through it. And the offender shows remorse and change, and you're able to engage in this interpersonal process of forgiveness. Sometimes reconciliation is not beneficial, you know? So when it's beneficial, you know, I talk about Darth Vader. Darth Vader blew up planets. He was a bad guy and he blows up planets. But at the end, well, I'm not hoping, you know, spoiler alert, you know, <laughs> he, he looks at Luke, you know, he's just thrown the emperor into like a lava pit. And he looks at Luke and he's like, let me look at you with my own eyes. You're right. There's light in me. I'm going to become a force ghost now and look glowingly upon you. All right. And yay. Sometimes we're not dealing with Darth Vader. We're dealing with Voldemort. Mm -hmm. Voldemort kills Harry Potter's parents. He's a bad guy the entire time. There's no remorse. There's no change. There's no redemptive relationship there. And here he has to figure out how to move on from that. We have these, you know, what, what Carl Jung referred to as archetypes that come up again and again, these stories that we tell that, um, um, that, that define whether a person goes through a heroic journey by reconciling with someone who has caused harm or by going it alone and becoming a stronger person uh, as a result. And then sometimes, sometimes we seek that reconciliation with someone and yet they haven't shown remorse and they haven't changed. And it puts us right back into the process of intrapersonal forgiveness and mechiva, that what I want from this person, I'm never going to get. And so how we process that grief and loss of that relationship 
or that understanding that this isn't what I want it to be. And so we end up um, in this outcome phase of, do I renegotiate this relationship or do I go it alone? And what does that look like? And so the measure I developed is based off that model. And it looks at where a person is in each phase of this relationship, you know, how do they view the person who harmed them? What do they view as the role of reconciliation? Um, has the offender demonstrated remorse and change? And are they thinking about more of an interpersonal process or an intrapersonal process? Um, and sometimes, and, and, and what, what I tell people is, is that you are not a forgiving person or an unforgiving person. This is time and context bound. If your son or daughter brings home a friend who steals $20 out of your wallet, you might look and go at your, at your son and say, that person is never allowed in our house again. But what if it was your nephew and niece? Your nephew and niece. Now we have to have a talk. We have to talk about what you just did and we have to put this behind us and figure out how we're going to make it right. Same event, but you've responded very differently based on the context. Same thing in couples counseling. Um, a couple who's experienced infidelity and they've only been together for six months. That's a lot different than if you've been together for 30 years, you know, the issues are very different. So um, being able to uh, understand that this instrument that I developed based on this model, it doesn't label you. It helps provide insight into where you are in a process for a particular event at a particular time. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something to talk about. It's a visualization of, oh, here's where I'm at. And is that healthy? Right. So the component you're kind of highlighting is this, this, maybe you start with talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it's a process. And, uh, you know, I, I often think that, that people have a hard time talking about their problems. Um, that's why they're called problems, you know? We don't, we don't have a hard time talking about our solutions. We have a, oh, here, here's how I've solved my, my issues. No, no, we have a hard time talking about our problems. And, um, you know, being able to look at issues such as, as, as forgiveness and conflict as normal developmental processes that we experience in our life that we can work through, you know, sometimes by just having somebody be a sounding board. You know, I hate the idea of counseling being those with, you know, for those with mental illness. No, counseling's for everybody, you know. Um, so uh, it's, it's a normal process. And we need to normalize uh, that experience to, uh, to be helpful. And so I do believe talking about it. And like I said, it doesn't have to be with a, a licensed professional. It can be with somebody that you trust, but somebody who's going to give you feedback, maybe that's important, but also just be there to listen for you. The, the healing doesn't always come from the advice somebody gives. The healing comes from you telling your story and somebody saying, I understand that's tough. Right. Right. And then what, what about the situation? Like if you go back to Sheila, who's trying to tell her story and she doesn't feel heard, does yeah. that complicate the forgiveness? Does that complicate forgiveness? You know, it, it was so tough for her because, um, you know, her father's denying the allegations. Her mom isn't, you know, isn't supporting her. 
And so there's, you, you know, it's this repeated traumatization of look what was done to me. And then I, and then, and then I come out with the courage to talk about it. And that's not even supported. Yeah. Yeah. I got to sit, sit across from, from some stranger in the room who doesn't know me from Adam. And that's my support. <laughs> that's the one person that believes me. Right. You know, um, very often with issues of abuse. And again, you know, I, I, I work, you know, I, I worked with adolescents and, and I would tell them um, you're going to get better, but in this process, it might feel like things are getting worse before you get better. Um, but you will get better, you know? And, you know, why do I say that? Well, you know, I've had to place kids with, in a youth shelter. Um, I've had to place kids in uh, a home of another family, you know, or other family members, you know, um, that's scary for the kid. It's, it's, it's horrible. I mean, you know, everything you've known, you're free, you know, you know, you're switching neighborhoods, you're switching schools, you know, everything you've known has changed. And, um, you know, but what you hope to see happen in the process is what happens when you feel supported and you're in a safe environment and you're not afraid of dad coming home at night, you know, you know, all, it will get better, but it won't always feel that way in the beginning. And so um, it's, it, it, it's a journey, you know, we, you know, when we go through grief and loss, um, you know, sometimes we know this is what we had to go through and it, it feels horrible at the time, but uh, even just the passage of time is healing. Yeah. So you have being able to speak about it having somebody sort of witness or, or hear you, then you can have increasing support for the person. And then now even the passage of time, all of, all of those things, helping things get better. Mm-hmm. And then, but then I go back to what you were saying, like that kind of the idea that you're saying is that you're trying to get to a point where you're wiping away the debt. Uh, How so, do you get there? Yeah. So let, let, let's talk about this, this role of reconciliation, whether reconciliation is beneficial or not. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, some of my research I did was with, uh, 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 with this forgiveness reconciliation inventory and this data that I collected, a lot of the data came from women in uh, domestic abuse shelters, mm-hmm. All right? And you're like, no, don't go back, <laughs> all right? <laughs> Do not go back. Um, and yet you would, you, you wouldn't be surprised, but maybe some folks would be surprised at how many people do go back to these abusive relationships. Um, you know, that's common. Um, and, and so sometimes there's this cognitive process, this, you know, of, of is, is reconciliation beneficial or not? Sometimes there's also a cultural mandate about forgiveness. I mentioned, you know, at the very beginning, you know, as a Christian, you have to forgive him. Is that true? Do you remember um, Dylan Roof? Dylan Roof goes to an African-American church in South Carolina and murders, I think it was nine people in the church. And at his hearing, family members of the murdered victims are there. And, they're, and Dylan Roof is being videoed in from jail during this hearing. And the judge says, you're, you're speaking to me. And the family members 
are saying to Dylan Root, I forgive you because I have to forgive you. And may God have mercy on your soul. That's powerful. And oh my God, that's so powerful. Um, but what was going on there? You know, was this a decisional forgiveness or was this an emotional forgiveness? You know, um, it almost felt like I am complying with this culture that I, I can't carry around this hate, but to deny that there's still pain and hurt from this would be foolish. Um, and we've seen repeated examples of this, um, you know, uh, throughout uh, where um, people have offered forgiveness for horrific events. Think of Nelson Mandela, you know, all those years. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I talk about uh, in the book um, uh, a situation in Fort Smith, Arkansas, where three men vandalized a mosque and they get arrested. And one of the individuals, while, at, while he's in jail, um, writes a letter of apology to the mosque and they embrace him. And they talk with the prosecuting attorney and they pay his fine. He's still charged with a felony. But then they're writing letters of recommendations for him to get a job. And they develop this relationship with because he has demonstrated remorse and has changed. Um, you know, and it gets into this idea of justice uh, and, uh, um, and forgiveness. And, you know, these, these are all intertwined. And uh, it's certainly a, a very important topic today. So, you know, when is reconciliation beneficial? When is it truly beneficial? And, you know, that plays a role in, in, in whether or not we work towards this interpersonal process where we renegotiate the relationship with the person who harmed us, or if we have to either by choice or by force recognize that reconciliation is not beneficial. By choice means, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to get over this but I don't want to wake up in the morning brooding over this every day. I need to get past this. That's, you know, I, I'm making the choice to get past this. I am going to withhold feelings of anger and ill will by recognizing that what I wanted from this person, I'm not going to get. And I have to be at peace with that. Or realizing that although I would like to heal this relationship, that doesn't seem possible. It's not possible because the person has passed away who harmed me. It's not possible because this person just refuses to change. All right. And either way, I end up in the spot of what I want from this person, I'm not going to get. And I have to become at peace with that. All right. And that get, you know, and, and, and I mean, I, I truly do believe that that's so connected to grief and loss. You know, how do you get over uh, something that was important to you? You know? Um, you know, that there are, you know, we talk about stages of grief. Uh, we also talk about that grief is very unique. So, um, but, but I do believe that we, we, we come to terms with it. And, and that, you know, but, but going back to your question, how do we get there? Sometimes we also have to get there by recognizing that we're angry and that's okay too. I think anger gets a bad rap. Um, I think anger can sometimes be therapeutic. I, I think it can be helpful. I think it can be a, an appropriate defense mechanism. And defense mechanisms are important because they keep me from getting harmed again. 
They keep me from re-injuring myself. If I'm mad at you and I'm not going to talk to you, I'm also not going to make myself vulnerable to you, you know? Um, you know, so, you know, understanding your anger and why you're angry and, you know, and asking yourself, do I want to continue to be angry? Do I want to carry this energy with me? Um, you know, I used to, you know, I still do in some regards, but, uh, you know, I, I have a martial arts background and I, I, I was always a, a slow starter when I would compete. Um, my wife would say, you get this look. And I know if you get the look, you're going to win. But it's always a matter of how soon you get the look. And I get the look when I get hit. And basically what it would start out with is, I don't want to compete. I'm really tired. I don't want to do this. And I get out there and I get hit. And it's like, whether I want to do this or not, I'm doing this. And I would get that look. And that anger was therapeutic. It was performance enhancing. It was a little bit of fear, you know. And I do believe that anger is a secondary emotion to fear. When you're angry, the real question to ask yourself is, what am I afraid of? And very often the answer is, is I'm afraid of continuing to be hurt. And one way to protect ourselves is through anger because anger does show strength. You know, there's other ways to show strength that might be healthier, but that's one way. And sometimes we have to use that. So anger gets a bad rap. I, I, I agree with you um, in my um, mindfulness meditation training, I've been taught that anger, another way to think about anger too, is, is to question what's the unmet need? You know, what do you need? What are you afraid of? What do you yeah. need? And I, to tie it back to, you know, your work, I guess if what you were hoping or what you thought you needed was a sign of remorse or an apology or, or even any type of reconciliation, then maybe in the absence of that, what it sounds like you're describing is maybe what you need at that point is acceptance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very difficult sometimes to, to accept these, these negative events that happen. You know, they're, they're not fair, you know, uh, they're unjust. Um, but sometimes they're impossible to undo. And, uh, it's really interesting in, in, in this four-phase model of collaborative exploration, role of reconciliation, remorse and change, and then the outcome of interpersonal versus intrapersonal uh, forgiveness. Um, three of those four steps are totally within the control of the victim. One of the steps isn't, and that's the remorse and change of the offender. You, you don't get a vote in that. Right. But you do get a vote in whether or not you're going to, I think, what, again, what you're saying is whether or not you're going to accept that you're not going to get it right. and whether or not you do get a, you do get a choice and whether or not you're going to continue to pursue something, you're not, you know, there's no evidence you're going to get it. Yeah. And I think that's where there, there's a lot of power there. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Um, that, that's the way I looked at it was, 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 was how this concept of mechila, this idea of, you know, you have the power to say what I want from you, I'm never going to get, and you don't owe me anything anymore. Another way to look at it is I don't expect anything from you anymore. You know, um, you know, if I expect, you know, you know, it, you know, I, I, it, you know, in Sheila's case, Sheila expected her parents to love her and support her. And she didn't get that. All right. So how does she heal? She ceases to, to expect. 
that love and support from them. And that's really quite sad to think about not being able to get the love and support from your parents, you know, but also understanding that love and support can come from a variety of places, you know, and then, you know, in that primary love and support, it, it may not come from your parents, but it, it can come from someone. And I, I think, again, too, goes back to your point where you sharing your story is a good step in getting some support, you know, even if you share your story with um, people that won't validate it or don't want to hear it. If you're willing to continue to share your story, that's where, you know, eventually you might get the healing that you need. Yeah. Well, you know, it's certainly, you know, developing that support system, you know, um, you know, that, that, that uh, relationship, you know, it it really is all about the relationship, you know, and I, having been involved in counseling and education since 1993, um, nobody's ever come to me and said, you know, Rick, um, I want to thank you for the treatment plan. Uh, When we sat down and wrote those goals and objectives and you sent them off to the insurance company, um, I really appreciate that. That, yeah, that, that was lovely. Or, you know, thank you for the diagnosis. Um, You know, you know, you know, once you told me I had an, an adjustment disorder, um, you know, that really changed things. Nobody thanks me for that. You know, what do they thank me? You know, thank you for understanding. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you for being present. You know, if you think about your teachers and the best teachers that you've had in your life, you know, and you thought about what made that teacher such a great teacher, you'd probably come up with things like sense of humor, passion, pushed me, you know, what aren't you saying? You're not saying, well, you know what? They wrote the objectives on the board and I really appreciated the organization of the class. Or I thought the test questions were really fair and reflected the content of what was being taught. You're not saying that. Of course, that's how we evaluate teaching. But what you are saying, you know, what you end up saying is you focus on the relationship. What made that person a great teacher was the relationship that you felt from that teacher. Um, You know, no one's going to care about your treatment plan or diagnosis. They're going to care that you listened and you were present. And uh, that's what the collaborative exploration part does. That's what talking about it does is it builds the relationship. Um, My uh, friend, colleague, and co-author on other books, Jeffrey Kotler, uh, we've written a book about counseling relationships and the counselor's life. But he also, he's written a book about stories and the importance of stories and how much we learn from stories, you know? Um, you watch the nightly news, you know, and you might not have an emotive reaction. Maybe you'll be a little frustrated when an editorial is given, but that's about it, right? But you go and you watch a movie and you might cry. You relate to it, you know? Um, You know, I tell people, you know, I've only had one book in my life give me nightmares, and that was... Uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frank. Um, that book gave me nightmares. You know, it talked about the Holocaust in such a different way. Um, and what resonated with me wasn't the psychological theory of logotherapy. It was his story. And that the people who survived the concentration camp weren't necessarily the physically strongest people. It was the people who maybe believed that they could make it through this. So, um, 
yes, you know, so I, I, I think, I think we learn a lot from that. Sure. Yeah. I, I think um, that that's what fascinated me the most about the, the book and what you're trying to present to people is that the same thing that I think you get from uh, Victor Frankl, that there is still a choice, even, even when you've been had a horrific experience, even when you've been abused, even when what's happened has been unfair and unlawful and unacceptable, that that all doesn't have to get fixed or that doesn't get to be, have to be wiped away in order for you to choose to let go of this need or desire for something that that's, I like the way you, you said that not, not expecting anything anymore, because that's, that's the thing. It's hard not, you know, I think, especially in this culture with the justice system, think like, you know, no, I deserve to get, I need to get my retaliation or justice or however you want to see it. But um, so let me just ask you this, because I want to just tap your, um, the, the geek part of you. And what, what have you found out about, is there anything you can share with us about the tool itself and any kind of like statistics yeah. or data or whatever that someone might be interested in hearing? So, you know, so I have this book, uh, you know, Practicing Forgiveness, A Path Toward Healing, and it's written for everybody. It's written for the lay person. It's written for the clinician. Very readable. Very readable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, and I, and I, and, and I truly, I, I, I worked hard to bridge the audience because the first question I get asked is, Who's this before? Did you write this for clinicians or did you write it for lay people? I was like, I try to do both. Both. Yeah. And so, but in the end, so I, you know, I, 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 I put the instrument in there and I talk about how to complete it, how to score it. And I do it in a very readable way. And then the appendix, I put in the back all the psychometric information that clinicians want to know whether, you know, and, you know, you know, um, you know, what are the evidences of validity? And I talk about, um, you know, how uh, the items were developed based on a theory. It was based on the forgiveness reconciliation model, which really leaned heavily from Enright and Worthington's work. Um, I look at the response processes and how I developed the items and what I'm asking the respondent to do, um, you know, using... Um, uh, uh, really just the, the, these opposing uh, words to, that describe each phase of the forgiveness reconciliation model. Um, and then I talk about evidence of internal structure, which is, you know, yes, I ran factor analyses and showed that this is indeed a four-factor measure that, you know, statistically, um, it measures what it says, you know, what, what, what I purport it measures. And then I uh, also did research where I looked at other forgiveness uh, instruments and I compare them, you know, whether or not this is associated with other forgiveness measures. And it was. And then I talk about how we can use this, not as a diagnostic tool, but as a process-oriented instrument that very often in, in, in counseling and psychotherapy, we, we talk about instruments as giving us this outcome score. How severe is your depression? Do you have ADHD? That's not what this is. This is where am I at in this process given this situation? And here's a visual of where I'm at. And it's really funny because I give this measure to people who I've never met and never spoken to, and they haven't told me anything about them. 
and they take the measure and uh, I say, so here's what you're telling me about your situation right now. And they're like, oh my God, this is spot on. <laughs> um, you know, and then I created 16 general profiles um, that describe, you know, the scores that you get when you, when you, when you, when you take this measure. And they're fun. You know, I have the everything is awesome profile where you have positive feelings towards the person who harmed you and you believe reconciliation is beneficial and they're sorry and they have remorse and they've changed and you're going to renegotiate your relationship and everything is awesome. And then I also have the no, no and hell no profile, whereas no, this is not good uh, how I feel about this person and reconciliation is not beneficial and they haven't changed, and I'm going to not expect anything from them and move forward. And then I have everything in between, such as the person who's very conflicted of, you know, wow, this relationship is really toxic, but I like it, um, you know, and I like this person, but reconciliation is not beneficial, and they haven't changed, but I'm going back anyway because I like it. And uh, we go, oh, wow, that's scary. Please don't. But we know those people. We know those people who are attracted to toxic relationships. And so we see, we, we see that as one of the profiles as well. Yeah. I just go back to your surprise when you were uh, at that conference and all of a sudden there's like 120 people there. I think, you know, all those different levels of um, where people are at in terms of their, their experiences and not just with maybe one person, but you know, you could think about your relations, your many relationships, where you where you are, and like you said, the difference between uh, whether or not it's your child's friend or a relative that takes. You know, it's the context. So I think that's uh, really really interesting. Well, I appreciate you taking all this time to share with us about your work. Yeah. Um, bef- before we let you go, is there anything you're working on now, or any? updates or experiences you've had with the book that you want to share? So some of the research I'm doing right now with forgiveness uh, is specific to the African-American and Black communities. Um, You know, uh, looking at the role of spirituality, uh, trauma, and forgiveness um, within the African-American community and uh, uh, because they're hurting right now. Um, you know, w- what's happened in our country, the disenfranchisement um, is really uh, poignant. And uh, I think that uh, we need to shed some light on, uh, on this experience. Yeah, that's, that's hugely, hugely needed. Um, both support for them yeah. Right. And then, and then the, um, you know, added awareness yeah. for, for those with privilege. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's really... part of, yeah. It's part of what, how I feel about being an ally and an advocate. And so um, that's, that's part of what I'm doing right now. And, and of course my, my middle daughter, she's like, dad, you know, write a book on revenge and then sell it in the box set. Um, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Maybe we'll connect again next year and right. <laughs> cover that topic. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. We'll be sure to uh, put information on, on the New Books Network website for people that want to find your book and, and find out more about you and uh, appreciate you giving us all this time. Hey, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.